I'm Leonida Inge. This is Due South. There is an Asian-American center at UNC Chapel Hill that's been at the center of some weighty conversations about race, place, and diversity. Not too long ago, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down affirmative action programs at the University of North Carolina and at Harvard. Asian-American students were at the center of the decision. Heidi Kim is the director of the Asian-American Center. She's been busy curating conversations on everything from affirmative action to the rise in violence against the Asian population. And Kim says we should not ignore the fact that there is a dramatic rise in the Asian-American population across the U.S. and especially in the South. One thing to remember to contextualize the, the big numbers is that a percentage growth really can mean something very small in raw numbers. So, you know, if I tell you there are two people of Asian descent in this town and then there are four in the next decade, yes, you've doubled big, your you've population. Doubled the population right. <laughs> but it's still very small in raw numbers and maybe as a, a segment of the overall population. So that's kind of the situation that North Carolina is in, where the Asian American population is growing by leaps and bounds, but as a percentage of the overall population, friends and colleagues in California, certainly Hawaii, would still smile and pat me on the head and say, that's so nice for you. Uh, We've had so many different drivers of immigration to this state. I think that really accounts for it. So obviously, education, the research triangle, uh, all of the tech industries, that brings a particular working and school population. We also have in North Carolina some refugee populations that have come. Uh, We have Lots of different ethnic communities that have snowballed and grown. The South Asian community is a good example. And so we also see migration of Asian Americans from different states coming again for some of the lifestyle and educational the opportunities. The same reasons here. everybody and their grandmother are moving here. Anyway. Absolutely. The same reasons. Yeah. yeah. Everyone moves looking for a nice life, good schools for kids, things like that. Affordability. The weather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the weather. I, I know um, you moved here in 2010. I did. Um, from a very cold place. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I mean, how has your life, I guess, changed? You've been here over a decade now. You've made North Carolina your home. It's true. And my, my child was born here. It was a real culture shock at first. Some of it in that weather that you're talking about. I've still got a bag full of winter stuff that I haven't touched since 2010. Um, but also, I think it is a different pace of life here. The manners are different. The history is very different. And I really had to learn all of that, especially the history of the university and some of the particular uh very painful histories around race at the university and in the locality. And I'm still always learning. So, Heidi, you were the inaugural director of the Asian American Center at UNC that was established in 2020. And that seems very new to me, 2020. And in a letter you wrote around that time, it says, the Black Lives Matter movement has impelled a renewed self-scrutiny from many Asian Americans about their racial positioning in U.S. society and history. And I wanted to ask you to maybe explain that a little bit more to me. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting to look back on that because so much has happened since, uh, and particularly for Asian America. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement really propelled renewed self-scrutiny, I think, for everyone. And for Asian Americans, it was really interesting to see uh, the discussions that sprang up. So there was certainly... There's a lot of Asian American support and involvement and alliance with BLM. There are also a lot of media articles that seem to ask the question Mm -hmm. whether Asian Americans are supporting Black Lives Matter, uh, which manifestly there were. But as with any group, it wasn't 100 percent. And I don't know that there has been a, a poll that gives a percentage Um, But also it did give rise to a lot of conversations. What are the things uh, with which the Asian American community is most concerned politically? There are generational divides there. There are divides in terms of um, whether people are immigrants or were born here with American-born Asian Americans tending to be more concerned about matters of racial equity and inclusion um, so all of those things really came bubbling to the fore. Well, you know, you sort of picked, I don't know if it's a great time or a stressful time or a tumultuous time to head this center at UNC because, you know, it, 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 since, you know, you've had the, um, the helm of this particular center, you know, the, the first thing that I think about is the affirmative action case, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the ruling from the Supreme Court and how even UNC was even a plaintiff in that case in the first place. And I think I was like, wow, you know, I, I, it was hard to believe. But, you know, that's what happened. UNC and Harvard, you know, um, set now set a tone that across the board universities, you know, can't use race alone, you know, when they're trying to, you know, shape their, I guess, incoming freshman classes and I, I wonder how involved had, has the center been or the center was in, um, I mean, supporting or not supporting, you know, that fight? We had some events where scholars came and spoke about this issue. And I will say, even before the center existed, it was always a topic that came up. I remember at one event that I was asked to speak at that was organized by an Asian-American interest sorority and a black fraternity together, uh, that was one of the biggest questions that came up during the Q&A to me and uh, one of the other administrators who was there. And it's, of course, been a really long-lasting conversation within the Asian-American community. There's such such a difficult conversation here, I think, and it's positioned so much for Asian Americans as a negative um, that uh, one one person phrased it to me recently as a lose-lose scenario. Um, That's not how I prefer to see it. I think that there are, there's a lot of Asian American support for affirmative action on campus uh, and in other parts of the country. Um, but there's no doubt that it is and has been used as a wedge issue. And higher education and access to higher education has always been kind of positioned for Asian Americans as this very 
important aspect of almost their identity or the identity that's been placed upon them, part of the model minority myth. Um, and so that, I think, really heightens the whole discussion to the point where it's almost impossible to persuade anyone of anything. It's very difficult to have an open conversation. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, also to move people away from the anecdotal. Define model minority, and please let me know how do you feel when you hear somebody say it. <laughs> I sigh. I think that's probably it. Sometimes it's an internal sigh. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little more external. Um, model minority is a term that was invented in the 1960s to apply to Asian Americans. It's from the same era where the term Asian American also was created, and that's not an accident because the 60s were such a time of racial turmoil. And the term was invented and really was used uh, in concert with a program of anti-blackness. I think that's very important to specify. So the model minority upheld initially Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, and the term broadened out from there, as law-abiding, economically successful, uh, well-behaved, and specifically triumphing over racism. That was the interesting part of looking back at those early articles for me in some recent scholarly work is that these articles were very explicit about structural and governmental racism as a problem that these groups had successfully overcome. So it was part of a narrative of national improvement. And again, we have to remember this is the era of the Civil Rights Act, right? Um, so right. It's, it's a moment of, of a a belief, a strong belief in a kind of forward-moving progress. That term has, has been used uh, over and over again. And it's interesting. It seems to be gaining a renewed currency. I think 10 or 12 years ago when I was teaching, I might say that term in a class, and many of the students wouldn't have heard of it. And no matter what their background or absolutely. race. Absolutely. Yeah, including Asian Americans. And now they, most of them, if not all of them, are familiar with it. So I think it's gained renewed currency both as a stereotype and as people understanding it as a stereotype to be pushed back against. And the reason for that is that even though for so long it was characterized as quote-unquote positive, uh, it's a stereotype that also cut Asian Americans off from other ways of living and being. And often that was implicit or explicit in the way it was used, that uh, Asian Americans were seen as not artistic or as learning by rote memorization or not activists, not rule-breaking, not pushing the boundaries. And Likewise, that by emphasizing educational and economic success, it really also uh, cut Asian Americans off from thinking about success in other areas, about well-being, about mental health. And there's been a lot of recent work on that, how, how embracing that, um, in some cases, feeling like that is the way to be, the way to be properly American as an Asian, uh, has really done harm to the community in ways that aren't quantifiable in income statistics. 
Does any of your work, you know, your writings help address this? I hope so. Uh, I've I've written a great deal on the model minority and actually the way that, as I see it in both culture and law, it was shaped in conversation with a conversation about illegal immigration that was happening at the same time, um, that there's always two sides of the same coin. And a lot of the pressure, particularly for Chinese Americans in the Cold War to be exemplary and be model minorities was as a way of demonstrating that they were not part of this fraudulently immigrating community when there was a lot of scrutiny because of fears of communist infiltration that arose in the 60s. So um, I've written about that, and there are many other scholars really taking this up now, and as I said, thinking about the psychological aspects of it in really fascinating ways, as well as looking at the way it initially formed. And I think it's important to know that it affects so many other groups as well. It affects refugee groups who are taught to strive for this kind of exemplarity. We also saw this kind of rhetoric used to talk about dreamers and to try to gain political and social acceptance for dreamers. We also saw it in many cases not work, that there's no such thing sometimes as being good enough. So what are we going to do about that? Heidi, I mean, what's what's um, part of your platform or what are you definitely trying to address at the center to help, um, you know, just make UNC Chapel Hill at this point, uh, you know, the campus that everybody wants it to be? I hope that we can play a really pivotal role. There really hasn't been a dedicated place on campus to forward education and research about Asian America up until the center's opening in 2020. So since then, I've really tried to foster a variety of conversations and projects, not just by bringing speakers in, which we certainly do, and we try to bring in speakers on a wide variety of topics uh, to appeal to everyone and to educate on all issues, but also by incubating student work, by encouraging and supporting faculty work, and also partnering with the community to try to forward these projects and these conversations. As an educator, I try to put forward the best information that I have, the best thoughts and the best thought leaders that we have, and ultimately also, as with these difficult conversations about affirmative action, I know that students will go their own way. And you hope that the seeds that you sow will bear something. But in the end, I I think I've also learned over my years as a faculty member that uh, students will go forth and, and use the tools that you give them. You just hope that you're giving them everything that they need. We hope so. (laughs) We hope so. Well, to add to, you know, a very, I feel, tumultuous term, you know, this school year at UNC Chapel Hill, you know, a professor was murdered on campus, an Asian American professor. Yes. And I know, so now added to your plate is even more, I'm, I'm sure it's heavy, you know, how, you know, what messages 
Uh, are you able to portray and even, you know, help the student body as a whole, not just the Asian American students on campus, you know, deal with something like that? It was a terrible shock to the whole campus and, and a great grief to us um, to lose Sajia Yan. I think that for Asian Americans um, and also uh, people of Asian descent who might not identify with that term on campus, that there was a lot of fear uh, particular to racial identity. Obviously, everyone on campus experienced fear. Um, but there was a lot of very specific fear that came out on that day and, and since that day. Um, you know, some of it grew out of the fact that as soon as the first individual who was apprehended uh, was known to be Asian, um, all kinds of ugliness started circulating on social media. Racial profiling. Absolutely. Uh, that that conversation immediately continued on social media, all kinds of speculation. I think for a lot of people on campus, certainly myself and many people I've talked with, it also really just took us all back to a lot of the fears that came up during COVID when there were so many acts of violence being perpetrated against Asian Americans, uh, not least of which was the Atlanta spa shooting in 2021 which was a really momentous event during the first year of the Asian American Center's existence and is kind of engraved in my memory of the center's founding. So, you know, th it, isn't, it isn't that long since all of those events were in the media constantly. And so something like this immediately evoked fears of just a renewed surge of racism and xenophobia and even violence against Asian Americans. Do you think any of this has to do with the rising numbers of Asian Americans in this country, as we were saying, in this region and South? You know, like, you know, incidents increase as the population increases. Is, is there a connection there, you think? There often is, uh, historically, just out of fears of economic competition grow, um, just, you know, where one individual maybe can be accepted as an anomaly. When there's a growing population, then you have to face the reality of a society that is fully changing. So I think some of it grows out of there and the fact that there isn't really a long, coherent history in North Carolina of an Asian American presence to draw on. So this is the case in a lot of the South, not all of the South, but a lot of the South, where the Asian American population is newer or has been a little bit patchy or scattered. And also, let's remember, is incredibly diverse. So even if there's been one particular ethnic community, a new one might come in and really shift the conversation. And change can make people really afraid, especially when there are feelings of economic scarcity. People get protective of what they have. Well, thank you very much, Heidi Kim, director of the Asian American Center at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Coming up, it can no longer be ignored. Researchers confirm Southern accents are fading. You're listening to Do South. 